The Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging presents The Art of Aging, information and tips on how to experience life more abundantly as we age. Our hosts are John King and Reverend Beth Long Higgins, Executive Director of the Ruth Frost Parker Center in Marion, Ohio, an initiative of the United Church Homes. Hi, Beth. Today, we're going to meet Susan McFadden, the author of Dementia-Friendly Communities, Why We Need Them and How We Can Create Them. We will also hear from Susan's husband, John, about a new venture they're pioneering called Memory Camps. John, I was at a conference about two years ago in Cleveland, and there was an individual from Wisconsin talking about that state's effort to become a dementia-friendly state. And she talked about the genesis for that idea in Wisconsin came from a professor and her pastor husband. And I sat there grinning because I knew exactly who she was talking about. Our paths began crossing about six years ago at the International Conference on Spirituality and Aging. And since then, she's been a resource for the Parker Center for a couple of our events. And she currently now sits on our advisory committee. Let's meet Susan. One of your first inspirations was a book by Tom Kitwood, Dementia Reconsidered. He had just a new way of thinking about dementia, that the way we treat people with dementia can either help or harm. And it's not just about what's going on in their brains. It is about this social environment that can be toxic or it can be health-promoting and he talked about creating a new culture of care, the old culture being the long, dark hallways and whatever, but the new culture where we value people, including the people who are doing the hard work of the daily care. And so that, too, was a revolutionary moment for me to read this little book and to learn so much. One of the things that struck me about your book was the emphasis on whatever you do, make sure that the people with dementia have input. Nobody was talking about dementia-friendly communities. That term was not being used. It started to come from England. And what happened was that there were some documents that were published online where people in England had gone to people living with dementia and had interviewed them about what they wanted from their communities. And what they wanted from their communities was to feel like they were still a member of their communities, to still feel included. But they were asking them all, you know, what is it in your community you can no longer do? What's preventing you from enjoying you know, going to the library. Somebody said, well, every time I go in there, I'm not sure about the new checkout system and I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake and so I don't go anymore. Nobody had bothered to ask people living with dementia, you know, is there something about the way we've got this library set up that is confusing to you and how might we remedy that? So it was really those British influences that were really quite powerful in showing what can happen when we are dementia inclusive. And one of the things that happens when somebody gets the dementia diagnosis is that because of the stigma and because of the fear, people often find that their friends pull away from them. And this is heartbreaking. 
and it's because these friends often don't know how to interact. They're worried. Oh, I'll say the wrong thing, or I want to remember him like he was. When researchers were looking at the social worlds of people with dementia, they were only looking at the family, and they were really not studying friends, and yet friends are so important. Many dementia-friendly communities start with setting up a memory cafe where caregivers and their family members can meet and socialize in a safe environment. Memory cafes are often the first step to take because this enables people to have this enjoyable social time with people who understand what they're living with and there's no stigma. We say, you leave your dementia at the door. So this idea of creating a space where people can just relax and enjoy being together at the memory cafe, not worry about the diagnosis, have their care partner not have to worry. You know, if their person with dementia says something or shouts something or does something, they don't have to be ashamed because, you know, we're all in this together. We all accept this and we know there are gonna be good days and bad days. So it's quite a beautiful thing. Part of it is doing public education. Some people are talking about dementia-aware communities where the focus is primarily on education. I think that's an important component of being a dementia-friendly community. We have adopted another program from England. It's called the Purple Angel Program. This started in England by two people, one of whom has Lewy body dementia, the other who cared for her mom who had dementia. And what they noticed was that the shops in their small town and even churches and organizations didn't quite know how to deal with the man who had the Louis body or the woman's mother. And so they thought, well, they need a little training. And so they put together this idea of the Purple Angel and they created a logo and decals that organizations could put in their windows that basically say, we are dementia aware. The people in the consumer facing jobs at our bank, at our restaurant, at our YMCA, whatever, they've been trained in how to respond helpfully, supportively, not in any kind of uh, judgmental way to people who are struggling with memory and other kinds of cognitive confusion. And these places around town would put this sticker in their window that would say to our folks who come to our memory cafes, this is a place where the people have been trained. We're basically encouraging you to be patient and kind. Everybody wants that, right? Particularly if somebody is asking the same question over and over again or can't quite make change in the store or is struggling with a menu that's seven pages long. Be patient and kind. It makes a difference. One thing that struck me right from the beginning was when you said there were over 100 types of dementia. We're starting to talk about Alzheimer's diseases, not just Alzheimer's disease, because we're starting to see differences among presenting symptoms. 
You know, some people begin the dementia journey not with a memory problem, but they've experienced a change in their emotional reactivity. This person who was always very calm and just got along with everybody is now very reactive and flies off the handle. Well, that could be the start of a particular type of dementia, not the memory loss. Another person might start to have problems understanding language and they're maybe having trouble producing language, but their memory seems to be okay. Well, that could be another type of dementia. One of the things, this is a very brief part of your book, but I thought was so profound was when you talked about Aristotle's definitions of what a friend is. Do you want to share that? Some friends are friends for pleasure. We just enjoy hanging out with them, and it's a marvelous thing. Some friends are more focused on utility, as Aristotle defined it. I take your kids to softball practice, and you take my kids to swimming lessons, and we help each other. And some friends are what Aristotle called virtuous friendships, and those are the ones that we hang in there for the long haul. And if our friend is having a bad day, we don't take it personally and feel rejected. We just say, okay, we'll try again another time. And it may be that we would have to say to a friend who's complaining about memory problems, you know, have you talked to your doctor? I'm a little bit concerned because you've seemed to be struggling with some memory. Do you think it's time to discuss this with somebody. You know, friends are often reluctant to say that to friends, and yet that's what Aristotle urged people to do was to be honest with their friends and to say, okay, you're having this problem, but I'm not going to abandon you. And that's what we mean by that kind of friendship. What are some of the other ways to be sensitive to the needs of someone with dementia? Redirecting anxiety. When am I supposed to go to my doctor's office? Uh, when do I go to the doctor's office? Is today the day I go to my doctor's office? And so then the anxiety is building and instead of saying, Mother, I've told you 10 times your appointment is tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Uh, it's a beautiful day today, Mom. Let's go for a walk. I, I see that the flowers are blooming at our next door neighbor's house. The redirecting of anxiety is a powerful tool. And slowing down, recognizing that it may be hard for people to process information quickly. I mean, this is certainly true for many older people, right? We have more trouble processing information quickly. Uh, limiting choices. Going back to my restaurant example, you know, these restaurants that have page after page of offerings, you know, how does a person without dementia make a decision? And so you can say, mom, the special today is something that I think you really like, you know, let's go for that. Or, or would you prefer the chicken or just don't make mom look at seven pages of a menu. Go with the flow. Avoid correcting. If mom thinks today is Tuesday, but it's really Wednesday, and it doesn't really matter if it's Tuesday or Wednesday, psh, whatever. Go with the flow. And that's something that it's hard for a lot of people to do because they keep wanting to snag their loved one and pull them back into so-called reality. You know? confusion about Tuesday or Wednesday that can happen to any of us and does it really matter? 
But because dementia is so frightening to people, we often want to just have them stick to the point of what we think is real. And that then can raise the anxiety. How do you deal with the tendency to infantilize people with dementia? Well, it happens a lot, unfortunately. So we have this mashup of ageism and dementism. So we've got all these stereotypes about what it means to have a dementia. And then we've got all these stereotypes about what it means to be old. And then we put those two together, and it's a pretty toxic combination. And sometimes it's hard to figure out, well, is it because I'm an older person, or is it because I have a type of dementia? But, you know, all of the above. And that leads to the infantilization. I mean, I can't stand it when people think they're doing me a favor by calling me a young lady. Young lady? What would you like? Uh, I have gray hair and wrinkles, and you're calling me a young lady? What's the matter with you? (laughs) Do you think you're making me forget that I'm 72 years old? No. (laughs) Uh, So that's a problem in our whole society. There's a lot of money being raised for Alzheimer's research. How do you think that money should be spent? That is an enormous controversy in our society this care versus cure. So we pit them against each other because money is involved. We've got all these different types of dementia and many different causes. A few are genetic. Some, uh, we really don't know what the cause is. And we've had drug trial after drug trial after drug trial that has failed. And they come on with great, you know, (laughs) hype and hope about how this might finally be the answer, and it's not. And then people are so disappointed because they thought this was going to be the answer. I think we need to pay more attention to care and how we can really bring this new thinking about care into our communities whether we're talking about people who are still living in the homes they've been in for a long time or they're living in care communities, maybe a nursing home, skilled care, long-term care, whatever you want to call it. I like to talk about care communities. But we do need to pay attention to that. We do need to pay attention to supporting care partners We need respite care. We need adult day services. And this is going to cost some money. So where are we going to get that money? Or do we just want a pill? (laughs) It's going to fix it. What medications are available currently for Alzheimer's patients? Many times people will get an initial diagnosis of dementia of the Alzheimer type or probable dementia of the Alzheimer type and a prescription for a drug that's called Aricept, most commonly. It's been around for a long time. It may help some people in the early stages. Most of these drugs are for people in the early stages. Then, you know, the person goes back to their doctor and they're saying, well, I'm still struggling with this. I'm still having these kinds of problems. And then another prescription will be added. Now they've got two prescriptions and that'll help for a while. But we're talking about a condition that is defined as progressive and they are not fixing 
the condition as it progresses. What is one of the most important steps you can take? We're really encouraging people to get an early diagnosis. And that's something that also came out of England, is that they listed out about 10 points that should be present in a dementia-friendly community. And one of them was to get an early diagnosis. Well, that's not happening. It's not happening worldwide. It's certainly not happening in the U.S. And why would you want an early diagnosis? Well, so you can plan, so you can take that trip you've always been wanting to take, so you can figure out whether your house is going to be a good place to live uh, should you become unable to mow the lawn and shovel the snow and all those things. This is also because we know that if you change your diet, if you exercise more, if you pay attention to social engagement, that might delay the onset of some of the symptoms that are so troubling. The idea here is that people should be able to make decisions about how they want to live their lives and that you get this early diagnosis and it is not a death sentence. It should be a way to inspire you to do those things that you've been putting off or to make some changes or to embrace parts of life that you've been too busy for before. You had one story in your book about the importance of maintaining religious rituals. For people who have been raised in a faith community with a rich liturgical life that has been repeated over and over for years and years, it is now a part of their whole being, not just their cognitive ideas about the theology of taking communion, but it's about their bodies and about responding to that ritual that has been a part of your life for decades. It is meaningful. And to present the wafer, the piece of bread, and the person to take it doesn't require a lot of thinking, right? This is just, this is what we do. And, and I've been taught long ago that this is drawing me into community and that this feels good. And so why shouldn't a person with dementia be offered that opportunity? They should be. And it can be a very powerful experience for both people. You mentioned social isolation as a problem. Social isolation, I mean, one of the things we say, in fact, there was a famous paper that came out a few years ago that said that it is as damaging to us as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. We have a physiological need to be with people, to interact with people. We need that. We're social animals. And so what's happened with COVID is that because it has been so devastating in long-term care communities, and they worked hard to try to keep infections out or to protect the residents, but they've ended up isolating them. 
And that social isolation has just been so hard on people. They don't understand why they can't see their family, why they need to wear this mask, why they have to eat their meals in their rooms and not in the common spaces, why the care staff are coming in with all the PPE on them. I mean, this is frightening. And it goes on day after day, month after month, and it's just been devastating. Along those same lines, you explained how taking the time to visit a loved one has a positive impact even after the person may have forgotten your visit. I have a wonderful quote from a book called A General Theory of Love by two doctors, and it talks about how a relationship is as physiological as any medicine. It can be good medicine or bad medicine, right? But if it's good medicine, the feeling will last. And we have research that shows this. So we've had research that has looked at evoking positive emotions in people and then seeing down the line, are they still feeling good? Well, yeah, they are. Okay. After the event has passed, it breaks my heart to hear people say, well, I don't go to visit her anymore because then I'll leave and she'll never know I was there. So what's the use? But what's the use is, is that you have gone, hopefully had an enjoyable interaction with your friend or your relative having dementia, and then that positive feeling will remain for a while. Now, it's not going to last forever, like nothing does in our lives, but it's going to be there. And yes, she may not remember that Susan came to visit her, but, you know, that afternoon she's feeling pretty good. We haven't really touched on the benefits for the caregiver. People think of caregiving as something you need respite from. Certainly you do. But you mentioned that a lot of people are working on mindfulness now. I talk about relational mindfulness. So most of the time right now, I mean, mindfulness is like, you can't turn around without finding an article on mindfulness. But most of the time, the way it's presented is that I will go into a room by myself and meditate for 20 minutes. And I talk about relational mindfulness and that I experience profoundly when I'm with folks who live with a type of dementia. Because when I am with them, I am fully in the moment. And I can't be thinking about that paper I have to write or that dinner that I'm going to cook tonight or the fact that I have to call my friend in an hour. I can't do any of that. I have to be fully present to this person. And I'll tell you a story about this. So I was working with two students who were first-year students in college, and they hoped to be nurses. And we would pull together a small group of residents, maybe nine, very advanced dementia, most of them. So I picked them up in front of the student union and they were like 18 years old and they'd come bouncing out of the student union with big cups of coffee. They got into my car and one of them said, this is my favorite hour of the week. And I thought, oh my goodness, you are 18 years old, a college student who can go to parties on the weekend and hang out with your friends, and you're telling me that your favorite hour of the week is with nine people who have advanced dementia. 
And it's because of that relational mindfulness. It's because they were fully in the moment. They couldn't be thinking about that chemistry test that they had two hours later. And that was, I think, an expression of what I'm talking about here. Memory cafes have become popular as a basic element of dementia-friendly communities. But Susan and John have pioneered what they call a memory camp. I had connections with one of the camps of the United Church of Christ in Wisconsin that had a long history of family camps, but also focus camps for special needs persons, primarily children with autism in their families. And I thought if they can do autism, they can do dementia. And here in Wisconsin in particular, so many of our elders, really important memories of what we call the North Woods. The woods, the lakes, the rivers, the sounds, the sights, the smells. And we had talked to any number of participants in our cafes who shared their memories and the regrets that they had not been able to go to the old family camp or cabin for so many years. And we thought, well, why can't we make a, a family camp that includes persons with dementia? And so the next year we had the first, as far as we know, in the country and maybe the world, memory camp. We had an amazing age range because uh, folks were encouraged to bring family members. Some came with a spouse, some with adult children, some with three generations. So our first memory camp had an age range of 95 to 5. And we did all the things you would do at camp, swimming, hiking, boating, campfires, of course, s'mores, singing around the campfire. It was about just building a sense of community, that we had volunteers who would come up a day earlier for training to give the care partners some respite when they wanted it, that we would be with the loved one with dementia, taking a walk or just sitting by the lake and giving the spouse or the adult child a chance to you know, take a walk or take a nap or whatever. And, of course, wonderful meals were prepared for us, so it was a respite for care partners from all the daily cares and meals and prepping and all the rest of it. Our second memory camp, we had a lesbian married couple, the younger of whom had very severe dementia, and it was so wonderful watching how our kind of old-school Wisconsin folks welcomed them into our community and offered respite care to her wife, and we're trying to spread this idea around the country because there are so many camp facilities, some run by churches, some by YMCA's or scouts that are AODA compliant, that is, that they have access for persons of limited mobility that could easily add a program like this. But we would love to see the movement spread. It seems to me a logical extension of the kinds of programming we're doing here in our region with our memory cafes and our day-long outings. Why can't we do three-day outings in a completely different setting? In our next episode, we'll meet aging hero Reverend Bobby McKay and hear about her groundbreaking work with women in the ministry and the study of what she calls God experiences. This podcast was funded in part by the Dayton Foundation, Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative, and the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, a program of United Church Homes. 
Audio production and interviews were conducted by Delmar Fellow Eric Johnson.